Will you join me in a prayer of thanksgiving this morning? Father, we give praise and thanks to you for, for the air that we breathe, for the, the life that we have, for our opportunity to see another day and to be able to enjoy the blessings of your creation. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. But Father, we thank you especially for the living hope that we have through Jesus Christ. And as Wesley said, we know that that there are those who are here within our midst this morning, those who are, who are watching online, who are listening via podcast, who have wondered this week, is there hope? Is there a reason? Is, is there a reason to continue on? Is there, is there anything good that's coming? And the answer in Jesus Christ is yes. The reason is there in him. The hope is there in him. And so, Father, today we come together and we say thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the salvation that comes through him, the hope that we are able to share. Thank you for pouring out your love upon us. And, Father, may we share that same love and that same hope with those who are around us. It's in the name of Jesus that together we pray. Amen. Church, I guess I need to begin this morning by thanking you for the way that many of you responded to a certain email request that went out this week. If, uh, if you're new to our EB family, if you are not on our church email list, then you missed out on some great, some great opportunities to be Jesus people. Uh, because apparently this week, I sent out an email, or it seemed, that asks many of you to do something very private for me. I had something, a great need of mine that was on my heart that I needed you to help me with. And I needed you to keep it to yourself. And if you just had a minute for you to respond, that would be great. And some of you did respond. Some of you gave me a call and I answered and, hey, what can I do for you? And you said, no, what can I do for you? Well, I... I I don't really know. Uh, let me, you know, let me think. And, and you were like, well, your email sounded so, so serious. And it sounded, you know, just so personal. And, and I appreciate you reaching out, you know, to me. And, and then as I kept getting those phone calls, and, and as I kept telling some of you that, no, it was not an email that I sent out. There was something, it was an email that was a scam that went out through our, our church um, contact list, and some of you were disappointed that I had not chosen you specifically. You were hurt. You were like, man, I thought I was, thought I was on Chris's top contact list, only to find out that, no, the message went out, went out to everyone. I did find out this week the limit, though, to the friendships that I have here, $2,000. That, that, seems to be, that seems to be about the limit because some of you replied back to the email, well, yes, I will do whatever you need. And, and you got responses back that said, well, would you then please send me $2,000 in gift cards? And, and you stopped. <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> and so that taught me something, that if this opportunity comes around again and if I really do need something, $25 from Outback, okay? That's all I'm asking for, okay? That, that is it. $25 from Outback. If you would do that for me, that would be, that, that would be great. I, I would, that would be awesome. 
Hey, look, I, am, I apologize for uh, the scam and for any of... Uh, problems that that might have caused you. I appreciate so many of you calling the office, calling me personally, uh, making sure that we were aware of what was going on. Thank you. Continue to be vigilant. I am sorry that someone tried to uh, use uh, my name, image, and likeness without paying me. Okay? I wish that would have happened, but no. Um, I really don't know what happened and how, but I know that it started, what, it was on Wednesday, about the time that this right here um, showed up. So, uh, I, uh, I had nothing to do with that. I had nothing to do with it at all. Uh, I'm pretty sure this was, this, this was it. <laughs> oh, but uh, again, hopefully, hopefully you were not uh, too bothered by it, and we can, we can all laugh it, laugh it off. You know, as we kick off 2023, we are talking about our need to live intentionally for God. Not going through the motions, not having a passive faith. And it's kind of like the email that went out. When you, you look at it on the surface, there was a lot of things about it that, that looked very convincing. I mean, there was my name, there was my ministry title that was there. Even on some of those emails, the name of, of the church was, was there listed with it. And the request, it seemed really good, but then you start to look a little deeper, and you, if you were to click on the, uh, the, the name that was listed there, my name, you would see that the email address was not actually my email address. And then you start looking a little closer in the way that the thing was worded. You start thinking, I don't know if Chris would really send this message to me or not. Maybe he would probably call me or something if, if he needed something like, like this. So you look a little closer, and you begin to see some of the cracks. And it's kind of like our faith. Where, where there are things on the outside that if, if people are just passing by, if they just see you in, in the line there at Target, if they're just watching you sometimes at the office, they, they might look and think, you know what, man, there is a woman of great faith. And there's a guy, I know he's at church every Sunday, man, what he, great, man, great faith. But then when we look a little bit deeper, when we look a little bit deeper and we start to examine some things a little bit more closely, we realize that there are times where we just go through the motions with our faith. And that's not what we want here in 2023. We don't want you just to become a better Christian or better at your Christianity. It, this is not going to be the year that we just merely pray more or read our Bible more or volunteer more or, or come to church more. All of these holy habits are well and good, but, but if these habits, if they don't have some type of impact on the heart, they're not really accomplishing, I think, what the purpose is. So last week, we were reminded that Jesus did not want his followers to confuse outward piety with inward purity. Ritual and tradition, in and of themselves, they're not a barometer of spiritual health. You understand, right, that you can pray and never talk to God. You can mouth words, you can say things that your mind has, but your heart can never truly speak to him. You can go through those motions and you understand that just because you gather here with Christ church doesn't mean that you're actually following Christ. Sure, you're here today, but who are you following tomorrow? And you understand that just because you've been baptized doesn't necessarily mean that you've been changed. It's a heart issue. And outward expressions cannot take the place of inner transformation. And so what we want to do is to seek purpose over performance. We want there to be meaning over method. We desire to be intentional with our faith and enjoy the blessings that come from drawing near to God. 
But for centuries, followers of Jesus have always struggled, ever since the very beginning, with what role religious ritual and tradition should play with their faith. In fact, some of the earliest writings in your New Testament were penned to address this very issue. And we're not going to get into all the specifics about this this morning. Uh, I know that uh, Travis Sharp is going to begin a class today focused on the Apostle Paul's Galatians message. And if you want to dig deeper into some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, you're welcome to, to be a part of that. And in addition to that, I'm going to be addressing this kind of subject on a little bit more, uh, I guess, practical level and personal level. On Wednesday night, I'm going to be addressing this in a class that, that I call Why Does My Church? And so if you'd like to... If you'd like to go deeper in some of the things we're going to be talking about today, I encourage you to, to be a part. But for this morning, you need to know that in the early days of Christianity, there were individuals who struggled with ritual and faith. Specifically, the people who had been born into and who had grown up in the Jewish religion. The first followers of Jesus were Jews. And, and Christianity began in Jerusalem, that ancient holy city of David. So we should not be surprised then to learn that many of those early followers wrestled with what, if anything, their former religious practice had to do with their current faith. How did it impact that new spiritual environment that they were in? Those religious practices that, that they had been brought up on and that grandma and grandpa had told them about, how did those practices impact the current faith that they had? And so a good deal of space in your New Testament is actually used to address this issue. And suffice it to say that it wasn't the practice of those ancient rituals and traditions that caused the problems within those church communities. It was the weight and the importance that these ancient rituals and traditions were given. And so at times, there were Jewish Christians who would demand that other followers of Jesus, specifically those Jesus followers who were non-Jewish, there was the demand that they begin to practice the commands, rituals, and traditions that were specific to the Jewish faith. And from our vantage point, all these centuries later, we understand. I mean, after all, Jesus was a Jew. And he kept the law of Moses. And he was considered to be the Messiah, the fulfillment of Hebrew prophecy. So we understand why some of the followers would think that, you know what? If you were going to be Christian, well, you also need to be Jewish. And so when the message about Jesus began to expand outside the borders of ancient Israel, and when non-Jewish people began to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it was not uncommon for Jewish Christians to say, hey, it's great that you are in Christ. This is wonderful that Jesus is your Messiah. But now, you need to participate in some special rituals and traditions. And since for generations, circumcision had served as the physical representation of the Jews' spiritual reality, new male converts to Christ were often expected to follow this ancient practice. Unless you have a surgery, you cannot be a Christian. And since you didn't have the surgery and you were eight days old, like all the good Jewish boys did, you must have it now in order to be saved. Now, among other things, it meant the new members class was primarily women and children. I mean, that's just kind of how it, how it worked out. But when the Apostle Paul heard about this, when the Apostle Paul heard that Christian communities, communion, communities, by the way, that he had helped 
form, when he heard that they were struggling with this idea, he sent a letter to these Galatians where he lays out in no uncertain terms that the ritual of circumcision has no power or ability. In fact, when he, when he writes near the end of his message in what we term chapter 5 and verse 2, when he writes there that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all, he uses a phrasing that linguists understand to truly shut the door on this issue. It is a phrasing that renders totally impossible the idea of something existing or even coming to pass. He is saying there is no way. There is no way that this physical ritual has any value for the believer in Jesus Christ. There's no benefit whatsoever to which the men in Galatia went, Whew. right? He continues in verse 3. He continues in verse 3 by telling the Galatians that the law of Moses is a unit and, and that submission to it cannot be selective. So he says, if you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. But then he goes on and says, look, but if you do this, he says in verse 4, you've been cut off from Christ. The physical cutting, he explains, results in a spiritual separation. And in fact, this reliance on religious ritual, he says, means that the person has actually fallen away from the grace of God. Now, maybe there have been times in the past in your life where you've heard that phrase used before, that someone has fallen from grace. And maybe you were taught that perhaps if you did not do some type of religious practice, if you did not participate in a certain religious ritual and do it in a specific way and at a specific time, that you would be in danger of falling from God's grace. Maybe you left one religious group for another or, or you joined with a group of Christ followers who are part of the same denomination you were a part of. Only they had some different traditions and they had some different practices and their worship looked a little bit different. And maybe you were told that because of this you had fallen away. You had fallen away from God. You had fallen away from grace. I remember a young lady when I was in college who came to the Christian Student Center there in Auburn, and she had been coming on Tuesday nights to some of our devotionals that we had. She did not join us on Sunday morning at the church where we gathered for encouragement and praise. She went to a, uh, another church on the other side of town. But she would come with, be with us on, on Tuesday nights. And even though I, I know that for many of our college students today, this is going to sound strange because so many of our college students and, and millennials and Gen Zs have no problem kind of having a smorgasbord of, of faithful experiences. It wasn't that way necessarily 30 years ago. And so this young lady received a letter from the church that she attended. She received a, a letter that said that until she until she came and repented before their church body, repented of the fact that she had been joining with the Christian Student Center there on Tuesday nights, that she would not be permitted to, to be a part of their church family. That she would not be able to share in communion. She would not be able to enjoy any of the blessings that come with, with the Christian faith. 
there in that context, that place. Not only was she going to receive this letter, but a letter was also being sent to her parents to let them know of the decision that she had made and how she had fallen from grace. So she stopped. She stopped coming on Tuesday night. She stopped coming so that she could go back and enjoy the, the only church family really that she had known since her time there on, on campus and, and also so that her parents would be proud of her. I, I don't know whatever happened to her. I don't know if she remained committed to Jesus. I don't know if she remained within that church body. Paul says a person can fall away from grace. But it's not because they practice or do not practice a certain ritual or tradition. You see, the, the church body that sent her the letter, they were upset because some of the things that, that, that we were doing and some of the things that, 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 our, that our church group did on a, on a regular basis were not part of their traditions and it wasn't part of their, their practice. Paul says a person can fall away from grace, but it's not because they practice or do not practice a certain ritual tradition. He says that a person falls away from grace by thinking that the practice of a, a certain ritual or the practice of a certain tradition has the ability to secure favor with God. He says that's what causes you to fall away from grace. The person is no longer dependent on Christ. They are dependent on the ritual. And when the ritual is more important than Jesus. But Paul says you've fallen from grace. In verse 6, he continues to hammer home his point by saying, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. And you can understand how this would be unsettling, right? Circumcision was for how the Jews for centuries had declared their faithfulness. It was how they showed themselves to be separated for God's purposes. Law-keeping was how they demonstrated their obedience. If not circumcision, then what? How were they to declare their faithfulness? And for that matter, how are we to declare our faithfulness? You see, I think their struggle is our struggle. How do we declare our faithfulness to God? For a lot of people, the strategy has been similar to, to, to what took place so many centuries ago. And we decide to place more emphasis on ritual than faith. It's great that you are in Christ, we say. It's great that you are in Christ and that you have accepted Jesus as Messiah and Lord and Savior. But now you must participate in some special rituals and traditions that are unique to us. You must pray like this. You must sing like this. You must read your Bible like this. You must share your faith like this. You must vote like this. You must worship like this. And like those first followers of Jesus, it's not the ancient practice. It's not the practice of those ancient rituals and tradition that causes the problems 
within our church communities. It's the weight and importance that these ancient rituals and traditions are given. And you say, but, but Chris, wait, don't we need to declare our faith? And as individuals, shouldn't we let others know what kind of people that we are? And as a church, don't we need to be faithful to God and stand for God's truth? And I say yes, and I wholeheartedly agree with your sentiment and with your desire to be faithful to God. And so does the Apostle Paul, by the way. So after he tells the Galatians that the practice of circumcision has zero benefit, he declares there is one thing that counts. He says that there's only one thing that counts. In the original language, it, it is written so that, that, that it said that circumcision or, or uncircumcision, it, it doesn't, doesn't accomplish anything. And, and then there's a wording that's there that, that just turns everything that's just been said on its head. It negates everything that, that came before it to say, you think that this has power. You think that this has ability. But no, there is something here that does have power. There is something here that does have energy for you. He says there's only one thing that counts. And can you see the Galatians as they get up on the edge of their seats as this particular message is being read? The only thing that counts. What is it, Paul? What is it going to be that counts? What is it going to be that, that helps me draw closer to God? Is it our worship assembly and, and how we are doing things during this one hour on Sunday and, and who does things within it? Is it our church organization and, and what we call different people and, and how we use different people in different roles? Is it how we budget our church money? Is, is that what it is? Is it the translation of Scripture that we read? What is it that counts, Paul? Tell me. He says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through, well, through what? Through mission trips or or small groups, or, or special offerings, or, or feastings, or, or prayer, or what is it, Paul? Just tell me. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through, and let's say this word together, love. Church, do you want to declare your faith? Do you want to show that you belong to Christ? Do you want to be faithful to God? Then Paul says that we are to demonstrate or literally to, to give energy to our faithfulness by love, by loving. Paul says there's no power in practicing the ancient rituals, but there is energy in a faith that displays itself through divine action. He tells them and us, it's great that you are in Christ. It's great that you are a Christian. So now, express your faith, not through ritual, but through love. For Paul told them the entire law, the entire law, this law that others are trying to get you to follow, this law that others are saying you've got to keep if you're going to be a true child of God, this entire law, he says, is fulfilled in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, God's purpose has always been the same. Show love. Give love. Do love. And over the next few weeks, we're going to discuss what this actually looks like. 
We're going to discuss what this actually looks like and, and try to be very intentional with this and, and look to see, okay, well, how does our faith actually express itself through love? What, what does that look like in concrete terms for us, not in just some generalizations? And, and as we, we begin to think about this, I just want to, as we, as we kind of wrap this up, I just want to mention to you one way that I believe we begin to demonstrate what really matters when it comes to our faith. You see, after Paul wrote that the entire laws of Moses could be, could be fulfilled by keeping the command to love your neighbor, he gave this caution. He says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out. If you bite and devour each other, watch out. Because you're going to be destroyed by each other. So friends, can we just talk just for a few minutes about something that is so needed in our society? Something that is so needed in our communities? Something that is so needed in our schools? And something that's needed in our churches? Because the culture and institutions that make up our modern society are being destroyed due to our inability to accept others out of love. Some of the Galatians refused to accept into their fellowship those who did not adopt their rituals and beliefs. They didn't have a doctrine problem. They had a love problem. And I wonder how many of us do as well. In another letter that's written by the Apostle Paul, he told Christians, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. And that word accept is a translation of a a Greek word that means to grant access or to take along. It's why we say if a person is too accepting that they are liable to be taken advantage of. Hence the scammers out there in this world. See, you and I are to grant others access to our lives. We are to to welcome others. We are to welcome them along for our journey. No judgments, no moralizing, just a welcoming spirit. But we struggle with this. And, and we, we wrestle with it internally whenever we talk about this idea of acceptance and accepting others. And I think this happens for a couple of different reasons. The first is that we confuse acceptance with approval. And some church people are so afraid of being seen as approving of something that is not socially or scripturally acceptable that they will refuse to welcome others into their home, into their social circle, onto their pew, See, we need to understand that that we can accept someone without approving of their choices. We can accept someone without approving of their choices that they are making. A person might be doing something that is totally contrary to the Word of God, but we can accept him or her as a person of great value to God without approving of the sin that he or she might or may not even be involved in. After all, isn't that how God treated you? Isn't that how God treated you? Didn't God welcome you? Didn't God welcome me? Aren't we told that God showed his love for us by sending Christ to die while we were still sinners? You see, at your job and at your school, there are, even within your family, there are individuals whose belief and actions you do not agree with or condone. But can't you come to see them as a unique creation of God with a soul of infinite worth and value? Can't you stop judging them against your life and morality and begin seeing them and yourself as in daily need of God's mercy and grace? 
Look, remember, it's not faith expressing itself through piety or faith expressing itself through religiosity or faith expressing itself through comparison or self-righteousness. It's faith expressing itself through love. And Paul says, that's all that counts. It's not approval. So relax. You can open your arms and welcome. Second problem is this. A lot of people view acceptance as conditional. I will accept you only if or only when you and just fill in the blank. For the Galatians, the issue was, was circumcision. What's your issue? What's your litmus test, friend? You can only be a part of my inner circle if you what? Dress like me? Live in my neighborhood? Go to my school? Attend my church? Worship my God? Speak my, my language? Give to my charity? Vote for my candidate? Want to be like me? You can. You want, to, you want to be like me and you want to be a part of my group and you want to be accepted at my table? You can if. And guys, we're seeing this polarization more and more in our society. I will accept you if. And here's what I truly believe. I truly believe that this right here, with this particular issue, this is where God's people can really begin to make a difference in our world. This is where God's people can begin to stand out. It's where God's people can, can begin to, to actually be able to, to have impact and, and create inroads into a society that says, I no longer want to hear about God or believe in God. You see, in a society that more and more separates and divides, Followers of Jesus should be the ones with open arms and open minds. Scott Sauls, in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, writes about this faith opportunity, and here's what he says. He says, this is where biblical Christianity is unparalleled in its beauty and distinctiveness. And he goes on to say, look, I'm not talking about the distorted belief systems that pretend to be Christian, but really aren't. He continues and says, I'm talking about the true, pure, undefiled, and unfiltered, and altogether biblical and beautiful system of belief. The one that leads people to trust God and to have hope for humanity. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To love neighbors who are near and who are in need. And to extend kindness to enemies. Guys, this is the version of Christianity that is so exciting. This is the version of Christianity that Paul said is the only thing that counts. And guys, this is the version of Christianity that is so freeing. Where we don't have to get up every morning and wonder, what can I do, what I cannot do? You see, this version of Christianity allows my thoughts each day to revolve around just two things. Two words, actually. Who and how. Who will I welcome into my life today? And how will I share God's love with them? I should not be worried about anything else when it comes to practicing my religion. 
Because the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I believe, therefore, I love. And what does that love look like? Well, for starters, it means that we accept. Friends, how would our world be different if tomorrow every single person woke up asking who and how? Do you think we would have less crime? Would fewer people go to bed hungry? Would fewer people go to bed cold? Would more children laugh instead of cry? Would there be more homecomings and fewer slamming doors? Would we stop hearing about beatings and shootings? Would couples stay married? Would there be less anxiety and more joy? Would there be fewer abortions and more adoptions? Would there be less money spent on addictions and, and more money spent on celebrations? Would social media become a place of an encouragement instead of rage? Would there be no need for locks or guns or insurance? Do you think we would still worry? Do you think we would be lonely? Would all the issues that divide and separate us still matter if everyone across the world would wake up tomorrow and ask, who can I welcome and how can I love them like God? And what about your life? I mean, I mean what, what about you just you specifically? I mean, it's one thing to talk about all oh, the whole world, but, but what about you? What about you if tomorrow you woke up asking who and, and how? What difference would that make? Would it change the way that you spent your time? Would it change the way you, you spent your money? Would it change the way you approach your family? Would it change the way you see your career? Would it change the words that you use? Would it change the places that you go? Would it change how you view being church? If you just woke up and said, who can I welcome? And how can I love them like God has loved me? And speaking of being church, how would asking who and how alter our relationships and the societal impact that we have as a faith community? Do you think we would place so much emphasis on this hour of worship? Do you think we would be more accepting of others? Would we praise more and gossip less? Would we serve more and complain less? If as a church we said there are two things that we're going to ask, who and how. According to Paul, there's only one thing that should matter to a Christian when it comes to following Jesus. It's, it's the foundation we're going to see of everything else. Faith expressing itself through love. He says that's what matters. 
I guess what we have to decide is, is it what matters to me? Church, what matters most to you when it comes to living out your faith? How is it that you feel you must show yourself acceptable to God? How is it that when you consider your walk with Jesus, how, how do you kind of measure things and rank things to decide, am I faithful? Have you been told before that you had fallen from grace because of beliefs that you had or because you began practicing a different tradition or ritual? Have you wondered if since you have fallen from grace, is there any way back? There's one thing that matters. Faith expressing itself through love. Does it matter to you? I hope so. I hope it's something that matters and that it's seen in your home. I hope it's something that matters and it's seen in the classroom for these guys. I hope it's something that matters that, that's seen in the office. I hope it's something that matters when, whenever anyone comes here on our campus and whenever anyone who comes to our campus then goes out in the name of this, this church body. You see, the last thing that I want The last thing that I want is for people to look at this church and say, you know what, it's just a scam. It's just a scam. It looks good on the outside. But when you delve a little deeper, we have the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We have the opportunity to follow Christ in this world. We have the opportunity to make an impact in a society that more and more is turning away from God. And we say, how do we do that? What do we need to do? Where do we start? And the answer is love. Who do you need to welcome? How do I need to show God's love? Let's start there. And why don't we start? as together we stand and give God praise.